Welcome to We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. I'm your host, Lauren Lee. And who am I? I was your wacky 10th grade English teacher who would occasionally rap a Shakespearean soliloquy, would always encourage a live performance of a book report, and would occasionally dress up in costume as Professor Dumbledore to host an ethics debate, who then, after nearly a decade, decided to take the massive leap of faith to attend a coding boot camp, switch careers, and dive deep into the tech industry. I've been surprised by how many of the skills and lessons I learned as an educator have translated to my role in tech. So that got me thinking, have you taken a non-traditional route to tech? Or are you interested in transitioning yourself? This is a podcast that aims to interview career changers and folks who are diversifying tech. We'll hear stories from people who've taken unique paths and chat about the skills that they've transferred to their roles today. We're hoping to create a space for people to learn from one another, develop confidence, and debunk the antiquated notion that a computer science degree is required to succeed in tech. Come on, everyone. Let's dive in. My guest today is a software engineer at Snap Inc., the camera company more commonly known as Snapchat. And to learn to code, she attended Ada Developers Academy in Seattle with me. But before she took the leap to learn to code, she was a managing director for a fiber art store called The Weaving Works. There, she taught knitting and weaving courses, implemented a new business plan, and managed the website to drive customer engagement. In 2017, she supplied Seattle customers with the yarn to knit their pussy hats in prep for the Women's March and sold out of all pink strings and fabrics throughout Seattle. She's also designed and produced bespoke knitwear, all from natural fibers, and did the finishing work by hand for her own small business. She has a degree in architecture and was a child actor. She's deeply committed to building useful tools to bring people together. She believes in the power and promise technology has to help find solutions to age-old and new issues and believes that it takes a village to build sustainable and bright systems. She's a builder, and her name is Jessica Owens. I'm so happy to be chatting with her today. Jessica, thanks for being here with me today. Hi, Lauren. (laughs) Hi, Jessica. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? Sure. Okay, cool. So let's dive in. Can you tell me more about the experiences that you had before you entered the tech industry? Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's see. I think I was trying to count earlier that this is either my third or my like 3.25 career in my life. <laughs> cool. Every decade, maybe? Uh, You've shifted. To be a shift. <laughs> okay. A little bit more, a little bit less, maybe every 15 years. Okay. Yeah. I was a child actor. So I started when I was four and a half was my first paying gig. Yeah. Bringing home the money. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I think I'm a generally pretty extroverted um, individual Mm -hmm. and my mom thought I was a ham. So that, that progressed into um, commercials and then some like television work. Oh my God. Do you have an IMDb page? Ooh, I think maybe I do. Ooh. I don't maintain any of it, so I have no idea how anything got on there. Super cool. Let's see no, how no. accurate it is. No, oh that's awesome. Oh, that, and so you didn't start in community theater that you just went straight into commercials, like oh, dive, yeah, dive into no. the deep end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, wild. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Locally. So I'm from Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, I still live here. I spent maybe eight years away from Seattle, but most of my life has been here. 
my name is actually really generic. So <laughs> there's a lot of us on IMDb. Haha, <laughs> find me. <laughs> so, you know, there was work when I was a kid here and then there's politics and then the work went away. But I did professional acting from like four and a half to maybe 15, 16. Cool. Took me through high school. Yeah. And then I ended up going to school for engineering and then finished in architecture. Wow. Yeah, which was kind of interesting. I took a long route through that. Um, I have a contentious relationship with academia. Okay. <laughs> turns out, um, not surprisingly, actually. Yeah. And instead of diving straight into architecture, I went with the thing that kept me afloat during school, which was yarn and knitting to begin with. Yeah. So I actually ended up having a part-time job while I was in school that just careened into the next 12, 14 years in fiber arts. Wow. Yeah, which is where I was right before I started Ada, which was the boot camp that I went to. That's right. Okay. And so tell me about how did you decide to learn to code and to attend Ada? Oh, okay. I think those were two different decisions. Really? Um, okay, cool. Yeah, so learning to code was a decision that I had not committed to for a very long time, but it was something I had mm -hmm. made early on. I went to a prep school here in Seattle and it was... The first, I went there for eight years. So I went all through middle school and high school. Okay. And the first four years were cultural adjustment period, mm -hmm. I'd yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> so that was trying to get my grounding under me. The one thing that I really loved at that point in time was math. Mm, okay. I feel, I feel a little, sometimes I feel a little guilty saying that because I know so many people feel differently about math. Oh. If anything's going to scare somebody away from something, it's math. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea why. And that's the same in fiber arts. It's something that has never gone away. You either have people who love math or you have people that just pretend they can't count. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, a few people can't count, but most people don't believe that counting is enough math to get you through most things mm -hmm. in life. <laughs> um, so I just had a really strong love of math and the logic that I saw in it Sure. Um, when I was younger. And that actually really helped me in prep school because it was the one subject that I could excel at. Yeah. So I'm of mixed heritage. I'm half black and half Chinese. In prep schools, especially when you're a diverse student, mm -hmm. if you're considered in the underrepresented minority group, they usually mark your strong points in the social sciences. Mm -hmm which were too wishy-washy for me mm -hmm. <laughs> at that period yeah. of time. Yeah, subjective so, in a way. Yeah, really subjective. And if you're not coming from the same point of view or you're not open-minded enough to understand what's happening in that work, that it can actually be really, really painful. Mm -hmm. So for me, social sciences were kind of maybe more traumatic than like the black and white of an equation. Yeah, no, I, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. So I stuck towards STEM. In fact, in my childhood acting thing, I did like three or four seasons of Bill Nye the Science Guy. Oh, get out. Yeah. So oddly, I really liked math. Science seems to be grouped together with math. I feel it like is. they're a little yeah. different. But yeah. like, And I had a slight heads up and that people would defer to me or they wouldn't question whether I was going to be good at science or not mm. because of that. Yeah. It so was like I kind name. of had a hall pass in the sense that teachers didn't brush me away mm -hmm. in those two subjects. Yeah. So I really focused on that. And I had every intention of going to school for making things. I really just like making things okay. and problem solving. So I wanted to do, I wanted to either make cars or buildings. And so I went in for mechanical engineering is what I ended up deciding to start oh. my education in. Sure. Bill Nye would have been so proud. <laughs> yeah, he probably would have. Although we did a lot of like biology and 
and like astronomy and those are not my oh, subjects sure, sure, sure. in the slightest. So yeah, I mean, when I was in when I was in middle school, I don't know if any of the listeners here will be old enough to remember or cared about things like GeoCities or oh, HyperCard. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god! Oh my mm-hmm. god! Like pre MySpace, pre yeah, back when the internet was supposed to be like these interconnected communities yeah, of that web of it. Yes, yes, oh. and like you had your villages. Oh my god! That anyway, is so, so HTML. Fun way back when I think Stack Overflow recently had their tribute to the 90s which was like the unicorn flashing image in the background and the scrolling horrific font in three colors oh it was such a Uh, playground of creativity though yeah so I was really into that okay Um, I see a computer geek I think in middle school school I went to a good majority of my classmates were children of the originating class of Microsoft one of my classmates both of her parents are in that very first photo of Bill Gates and Paul Allen and like the eight people that started Microsoft. Yep. Having come from being a teacher at an independent school in Seattle myself, I'm familiar with the (laughs) alumna from that school. I imagine that that would make programming super normative and maybe even set the bar really high. Yeah. So we, and I was not that, but I was around that and sure. But to be like immersed in that world is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was like really early in my formal education. I knew how to like take apart computers and put them back together. I was totally into like command line stuff way back when. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very formative. Yeah, I bet. But the weird thing was because of all of the parents and all of the like maybe mentorship and people in the industry at that time were super burnt out or they had made their millions and they had moved on. Oh, wow. None of them recommended that as something that we should do. Oh my gosh, that is fascinating. Like if anything, we should manage, we should be in charge of that, but not do that work. Because I mean, at that point, it was like people at Microsoft sleep under their desks, which it totally has not that reputation anymore. But it was like, you go there and all you do is you spend time there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's a great book, Microsurfs. Have you read that? No, but yeah. It's like a tell-all. Yeah, yeah, anyhow. They they managed to retire super early. <laughs> But at the same time, it wasn't something that they wanted for their children. Yeah. Um, they definitely did not steer anyone towards that. And sure. Wow. if you know the school I'm talking about, so Bill Gates and Paul Allen matriculated from there. That's where they met. Oddly, we did not have programming until my senior year. Oh. It was not a class. Yeah. Yeah. So it was something that like I had an interest in. It didn't seem like something that you needed to go to school to do, Mm -hmm. um, which I think I liked. Like I always figured I'd pick up more of it and it's not something that I let go completely of. Okay. I came back to it in many of my studies. Um, I think if you're in STEM, you're going to end up coding a little. Yep. If you're in architecture, I I mean, I ended up coding um, while I was in architecture. If you run a business, you probably have a website. There's always stuff going on. There's always a plugin of some sort that you're trying to use. Yeah. It wasn't something that needed to be so formal. And at some point in my life, I turned around and it was, whoa, the world's different. Mm. I obviously have a strong love for the fiber arts, um, knitting. And then when I moved back to Seattle, it became knitting and weaving. Okay. The store that I ended up running, the weaving works started in 1976. Wow. So it's been here a long time. It's taught several generations of weavers in Seattle and knitters, but it started as a weaving school. 
Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. And weaving weaving and programming are like hand in hand. The first punch card was used to operate a card loom. That's where they were invented in order huh. to set the patterns for the looms because looms are literally punch card computers. Oh, they just wild. spit out textile as opposed to whatever else. That's amazing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So innately kind of ingrained to one another in mm-hmm. an interesting way. We owe computers to the jacquard loom. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so amazing. And you run into like I I mean my work in the yarn store, I love people. I really do. So customer service and I got a lot out of teaching there. I really appreciated that. But my time there, I was spent a lot of time cross generationally from like really young people to a lot of really elderly people. Okay. And also in that span there are a lot of math and science nerds that are also fiber arts nerds um uh yeah actually almost all of my coworkers and when I started had science degrees first wow yeah yeah so really like really enmeshed but the other thing was I got to see a changing Seattle through the eyes of my customers yeah and I mean I realized from a business point of view that retail is dying or Mm -hmm. is changing dramatically and if you've been around long enough you have to adapt or die. Yeah. It's kind of the way everything works. And some industries are better at adapting than others. So the things that I loved about the community that I worked with at the Weaving Works weren't really sustainable in a for-profit business way. Sure. Especially like when our customers are coming through and they're all employees of some of the big tech that is changing things. Mm-hmm. The way they view us and the resources they need from us are very different mm-hmm. than what we were giving like broader community. So it was really interesting to engage with people that way. It also became clear to me that programming now was a viable career for having outside hobbies. For instance, you were better able to leave if you worked in tech, just Mm. from the fact of being able to afford the equipment. And apparently they had time, which was news to me. Uh Yeah, there was like this big like, aha, there's this world out there. And it's totally different from when I was a child and what that world looked like. And now it's kind of I mean, in this town, if you're not tech adjacent, it can be a struggle. So I made I I made the decision to wind down my time at the store, which was actually kind of huge because other people's livelihoods were also in the mix mm-hmm. and to do something that would give me skills to either transition the work that I was doing with the weaving works into something new, like adapt or die, or just, I don't know, I, I started a new career. I basically looked at it and I had been telling my coworkers for a while that nothing was sustainable and that we would need to pull the community together to keep things operating at the same level. Yeah but didn't get a lot of feedback from our community. So I think it was kind of time to move on for me and possibly for the store. It's in its like fourth iteration now, and it's much, much smaller in scale, which I think is really good for it. We'll see. I'm still involved, but... It's hard to leave um, that community, I imagine. It's hard to leave that community, but the community was aging and the new community that was coming in are a lot of people that are now like I'd consider my coworkers. Mm. So it's a very different generation. Like the store, I'll give a little history. The weaving work started as weaving instruction space. So it started as a way for a teacher to supply her students with the equipment and the materials needed to learn. It takes a lot of stuff, weaving does. Um, (laughs) And it grew. um, It grew. She worked in a lab at the UW and several of her co-workers there also were weavers okay and they kind of banded together and made the weaving works which then boomed they did a catalog so if any of you aren't familiar a catalog <laughs> is a paper brochure <laughs> that 
list <laughs> products, their description. Oh my gosh, I'm fact, dying. I have one from the 70s. Very cool. Um, in the archive. Sure, but that was the natural progression. That makes right. sense. Yeah. There were also no photos. Like you have to understand this was like a group of hippie scientists yeah. in Seattle in the 70s. There were no photos. It was like they typed the sections, they set them with tape. All of the lines were actually like tape onto the sheets and then they were like facsimiled onto these like newsprint brochures that would get mailed out. Oh, so incredible. I know. Oh, what an artifact. I love that you still have it. I actually still have the typewriter that we used to type our W-2 forms for the IRS up <laughs> until the year, which was not very long ago, that the IRS ran out of those forms. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so like, get oh, out. Yeah. Okay. So it was, yeah, such a morphing industry to be a part of too, and to see it yes. transform and to adapt with each kind of decade that's coming along. Wow. Wow. Right. So it was catalog business and people from around the country couldn't get to places where they could touch yarn. Mm -hmm. So they send away for samples and stuff. And that was like, and we're back to that. Like what I'm saying is basically we've gone through that. Then yarn stores had a boom. People became more able to go between cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Became a thing. You could go and ask someone for help. 50% of the work that I did, the reason that it's not exactly 100% retail is you don't usually go into Nordstrom's and ask them, how do I wash this pair of pants I bought from you two months ago? Right. You need the expertise that comes with selling the yarn too. Right. So there's a lot of customer support and education that happens. Yeah. And that became like the fundamental premise of what the yarn store kind of is today is like a community space and a learning space along with the really, it's a really tactile hobby. So it's a tactile space. And then the internet came up and retail on the internet came up. And now it's cool to get a package in the mail of something you've never seen Mm -hmm. before. Before that was like the bait, like it was exciting, but it was also kind of sad because that was the only way you could get something. Sure. Now there's a novelty to it. Now there's novelty and everything happens instantaneously and we're not able to keep up with the logistics of an Amazon. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's impossible. So it became, I think in 2000, uh, which I can't remember what year that was for Amazon, but they were still deep into books predominantly and not the other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point in time, 80% of our business was selling books on fiber arts and that dropped oh, to like 10%. So that was like a huge portion of our revenue oh, that just wow. kind of got wiped out in a few years. Oh my gosh. So the, the writing was on the wall. I came in well after that. But Sure. If you look at that order of operations though. Wow. Right. And so then it became people buying their books online and because you can price compare and it's there's no sense of loyalty, which is fine on the internet. But then it became like in the last few years of being there, people just coming in with things that they purchased completely elsewhere and needing the same service. Needing the expertise because that's, yes, you can watch a YouTube video of that though, right? But like there is something to be said. And you're in a panic. You want a person. (laughs) Oh my gosh, absolutely. At the end of the day, that's a difficult thing to automate, right? And so that still is. And so that's where I am with with Fiber Arts right now is how do we continue with a service that is, you know, and community groups can do it. If you have a local group and there's one person who's seen the problem, somebody else can help you. Yeah. No doubt about that. But there's also something to be said for the people who've gone to an obsessive level, I would say, of fiber arts that are willing to share their knowledge. There's something also really beautiful about the idea of wanting to pass on that knowledge that mm-hmm. is inside of one person. And so a community space of carrying on this content knowledge that they have, right? Institutional 
knowledge. I think yes. the weaving works man on deep, deep wells of that. And most of the That's things so cool. I've learned about fiber arts have not been through practice. They've come from my coworkers and just being around a group of people who have seen different problems. And that's that's very similar in tech, right? Yeah, so very cool. You're in a room with a bunch of senior engineers and there's some obscure thing that happens. There's a good chance that somebody else has seen it. Google's really great, but I, I prefer people. Yeah, of course. I think that that's super fair. And there's something really nice about that conversation that you can have about like, help me through this. You've seen this before and we can do this now together and we can share that knowledge. It's pretty beautiful. Which is what I, I look for. Oh. That's something that I'm still searching for. I know it's there, but like that is a culture that I really, really want to evolve and be a part yeah. of, at least. In no, well. it's important. Me too. I think I feel really passionately about that. So, okay. So Jessica, can you tell me how your past as a fiber arts professional has helped you today in your role as an engineer? Well, there's the pattern recognition part. That sounds like a big one for sure. That's definitely, if you understand how a loom works, you understand how a basic piece of equipment operates and mm -hmm. that you have this full control over it. It's so transferable. I love that. Oh my God. That's like super direct. Yep. Knitting. Knitting is extremely binary. You're dealing with one stitch at a time or the next series of them. Like it's very, very linear. linear. Oh. It's a grid. But also I think- <laughs> This is an area I have no yeah. knowledge in. And so yeah. I'm like, oh, what? tell yeah. me more. <laughs> Crochet is like the wild, wild west. Like that's like oh, free cool. form out there. But knitting is much more like you have to attack one stitch or a very small group of stitches at a time to build. You're taking two sticks and some string and you're making, oh, a garment. I don't know whatever yeah. you're going to make. Right. So it's very, it's extremely so, linear. Yeah. One piece of string, usually maybe a couple, but we'll, we won't get into that. But no, but it's cool. There's something transferable in the sense of like immediate gratification too. Of, I just built this with the strings yeah. and the sticks together and it's comparable. I imagine to, you know, putting together the code and it compiling right. and running on your page and being like, yeah, yeah. I built that. I, the same, same in a way. Right. Like that's like one line of code is like one row of knitting. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. If you're going to make a sweater, that's two arms, a front and a back. Yeah. Right. So like generally you can do it in one fell swoop, but you have to think about these parts, right? So you're thinking, about, okay. I want to make a sweater. It is going to have this neckline and this hem and this type of sleeve. It's going to have this okay. kind of decoration. And you have to think about all of these things before you start yeah in your design phase you design this object okay. and then you have to break it down so then you have to be like okay well these are the pieces I need and these are the materials for the pieces I need and that this is the number of stitches like this is what it's going to take because it's the size I'm going to need it to be this and I'm going to have to shape it this way so then you hmm. calculate the layout of it with the pattern on top of it and how you're going to construct it you could make it all in one right you could start yeah. from the neck and knit down and knit all the way out so you knit okay. like the yoke and then you branch off and do the body and you leave space for the sleeves and you come back and do the sleeves or you oh, wow. in individual pieces and seam it all together like these yeah. are choices and decisions that need to be made and you need to understand how they're going to work together because otherwise you'll have to rip it back which you can do oh, we do that a lot yeah you can rip it back and restart but it's wild though right yes. like if someone was listening just stop like got immediately jumped to this part of the conversation mm -hmm. you could easily be talking about code right now too like that's so insane right so like you can refactor over and over again oh, it's God. a lot 
you try and think about these things ahead of okay. time. You do your samples to make sure you prototype. So you make sure that it's going to kind of work, oh right? God. So we do this thing called swatching where you like knit a certain number of stitches and you take the calculations and then you need to make sure that over the course of your knitting, that does not change. You know, you Get have to out. figure out what yeah. size needles you're going to need. If you're going to need different needles, if you're going to change the hemline or if you're going to rib and how you're going to do all of these things. So it's one object that mm-hmm. needs to be broken down into pieces they need to be made. They all need to work together and then you have to go and execute. The other thing that I've noticed is actually more instrumental is when I came into teaching knitting yeah. and developing patterns for brand new um, students and uh-huh. even more advanced students. Basically, I now have this sweater that I want you to make. Mm-hmm. And what I need to do is I need to give you a list of materials that you need to acquire. I need to tell you how to get the same gauge. So that sure. little swatch that you made, I need you to make one exactly the same size before we start this project, or it's not going to be the same object as what's displayed. Okay. So I need to be able to make sure that you can do that. Good note. <laughs> People really skimp on that step. If you're going to knit, don't skip on that step. And then I need to tell you what we're basically doing. I need to say, hey, we're making this sweater and we're going to make it in pieces. We're going to make a front. Here's the instructions for the front. We're going to make a back. Here's the instructions for the back. And we're going to make the arms. And I'm going to make these arms the same. So you're going to need to make two of this object. And when you're done with all of those objects, I'm going to need you to put them together in this order. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to need you to do some finishing work in this order. And while you're at it, we're going to use three different patterns in different parts of the sweater. Here are those three patterns. When mm. I tell you to use them, I need you to use them in this place. So writing a knitting pattern and dissecting a knitting pattern is exactly the same as writing. Code. Wow. Yeah. And being well documented so that others can then create it identically or use it and know mm-hmm. how to problem solve themselves as opposed to just running to you. On top of I'm going to make this pattern so that a wide range of sizes of people can can wear it. So I'm going to give you instructions for all of those at the same time because I can't pay for all the ink to write those separately. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot of like, like looking at code for like a website, it's basically exactly the same. Yeah. The parallels are amazing. Yeah. So that for me is like, I I follow instructions well and I'm good at giving instructions in that sense, but I'm still learning that technically an arm, a sleeve is not the same as, you know, a component necessarily. Like I still have a long ways to go. Definitely. What's the tech stack that you're working at in Snap? Currently I'm doing Android development. Right now I'm doing Kotlin and Java. Okay. Neat. Predominantly, yeah, with a little SQL. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So actually let me take it to that place. Can you tell me about your role at Snap? Sure. I am on the communications engineering team at Snap. This app has a section of it where you can chat. And so we own all of the chatting. Oh, cool. And the friends feed. So that's where you see your list of friends that you could chat with. Oh, neat, neat. Yeah. We also own all of the notifications for the application. So those are things that you see inside the app that pop up when something's happening that we want you to go pay attention to. to Or if sending's taking a little longer, you'll see like a sending message sent thing. That's a notification. But also all the push notifications. um, So when the app's not in the foreground, so you're in your mail or whatever, and somebody sends you a, a message, that notification belongs to our team. And that specifically is the team that I work on right now. So my sub team is notions. Yeah. Oh, that's so fun. Very cool. It's a very yeah. playful app. I'm yeah. looking at it right now. And it is. Goodness. Yeah. It's um, back to that. Um, the unicorns in the, in the 90s. Like it feels uh, akin to our design style. Yes. Yeah. I love it. 
Oh my gosh. Very awesome. Okay, neat. Well, so can you share any life lessons that you've learned from your transition to tech, Jessica? Oh, sure. You know, I was really privileged as a child to be able to attend an academic space that wasn't really accessible to people from my background Mm -hmm. early on. So I, I got a lot of the culture shock of being in a pretty homogenous environment early. I think that that's carried over well. Working in retail has carried over in the sense that I have extremely strong people reading skills now. Mm. I can tell what's going on with a lot of my coworkers before they're willing to acknowledge it. So your EQ <laughs> and observation skills have lended you to be such an empathetic coworker, I imagine. Yeah. And that also kind of saves my bacon on occasion too. Ah, interesting. Yeah, so I find that knowing that others aren't going to be at that level of awareness with other people gives me the opportunity to kind of get out ahead and explain myself maybe a little bit more or to address issues a little bit bit faster. It doesn't always work, but it is something that I am aware of and I think does help me and it keeps me calm just being able to acknowledge that other people aren't understanding the same things that I'm understanding keeps me a lot yeah. calmer. Yeah, that's really brilliant. I think I am lucky right now in this transition to be in this environment where honestly, everybody on my team has gone straight from college into software engineering. Right. So your life experience that you bring to the table. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Being able to, so it's extremely homogenous in that sense. Like it's super homogenous. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't have any children. People my age seem to have children at, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So they definitely have like this parent thing that I don't have, but I'm extremely empathetic. But also it's really interesting to me because I think that if I didn't have the background that I have would be really bothersome. Mm -hmm. I actually think that I'd have a lot more stress dealing with my coworkers if I hadn't mm. spent so much time dealing with the elderly or the sure. very Gosh, that's funny. So people skills, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that leads in managing. Managing up is a thing that happens. Managing laterally is something that I'm working on. I need to consider myself a peer. Yeah. I come from a background where it's completely okay to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you break that down for me? And I feel like yeah. that, that should be accepted. Um, and the work yeah. that I do, the office that I'm in, everybody's extremely senior. So it's much more intimidating, but also they don't necessarily know where to break it down to. Because if yeah, 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 yeah. senior, they've done nothing but this for the last. Like what components yeah. to like help make it sense of it? Wow, that's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. So it's like trying to help somebody else help break it down yep. for me. Yep, yep. Which is an interesting exercise, Ooh, but that's going to be yeah. a great experience. Though <laughs> you're going to bring to yeah. any team, yeah, wow, wow, yeah. And I mean, I'm lucky. I know that Snap hires for kindness and creativity on top of intelligence. Really? Oh, that's yeah, me. Yeah. I love that. Three company values are kindness, creativity, and intelligence. Hmm. So for the most part, I found that to be true, but it's also finding ways of accessing, you know, the knowledge that's in those very deep brains. Yes. Like how can I use that too? (laughs) From my point of view. Yeah. So the institutional knowledge sharing, because a lot of people are just like, just read the PRs that came before it. Oh, just like, oh man, but that's up to the author. Yeah. You're like, but, but what if they didn't author it so that someone else could understand that? Yeah. Um, There are some roadblocks in that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a very oral learner and sharer, so that's you okay. know, trying to figure out how that works. Is, yeah, that's 
fascinating, yeah, it's, also tired. It's interesting coming back to that narrative of institutional sharing and how do we make sure that we pass that knowledge down on is a theme of this episode, right? Of, of like, how do we yeah. make sure that the people learning now can benefit from the information that we have and those ahead of us? How can we get the knowledge that they have? It's interesting. It's forever a problem. It's everyone struggles with it, though. It's incredibly relatable right. in a way. One of the major complaints I've gotten from engineers that have two years or more experience, so it happens very quickly, is that documentation, I mean, is great. Documentation's great, but it has its limits because everything changes so quickly. Exactly. It becomes static so fast. So we, we get into these terms like self-documented code and the tests are your, you know, your documentation, mm. and which is not true. Like, I believe that is also true. What I find to be really interesting is for me, when I'm talking about institutional knowledge, it's how do I make that code so legible? Can you give me the tricks to, it's not necessarily what is this code doing kind of mm -hmm. knowledge, which should be self-documenting in the code. And I guess if you squint at it long enough and think long enough, you'll probably get it. <laughs> but it's more that like, I'm in this room with these amazing engineers that have come to this company to have fun, basically, at this point, like, several of them probably could retire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Like they've come to this company to make something that is fun for the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To do new things to, to push and to push. So they have all of this information and they have these goals and motivation in mind mm -hmm. and sharing that institutional knowledge with somebody that's as junior as I am, but is also coming from a different background. Yep. I think is where a lot of really great work and new things could come out of. So that's the part that I'm interested in fostering that I'm still working on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we share? You made this mistake with unit testing for like the last 10 years and suddenly you figured it out and you had this aha moment. Yeah. Like that's the moment that I want to have shared. Well, I'm sure that that's exactly why you are an incredibly valued member of the team too, that you are helping facilitate those conversations and that learning. And so your role is probably so crucial. I'm so I'm excited it. to see you do that. <laughs> Thank you. Me too. <laughs> so Jessica, do you have any advice for those wanting to transition into tech that you can share? Sure. Yeah. I think that for me, confidence is key. And when I say that, I know there's mm. something called imposter syndrome. We all yeah. fall into it, especially if you're coming at a different stage that is not fresh out of computer science yeah. school, <laughs> is that know who you are and what you have to bring to the table. You're probably a more developed individual in another regards than other people are. Mm -hmm. They're probably way more developed in some other areas that you're not, and that's fine. And everybody should be able to come to the table. So be confident and who you are and why you're mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. That even if you're junior, you being there has something to offer, is going to make other people look from a different point of view, that your presence is valued. Yeah. But also that certainty, for me, that's one thing that I can't write on. Being certain of anything is the downfall of anything. Mm -hmm. So like, just be open-minded, but come in with confidence that you have something to offer. Yeah. And I think oh, that, that's that, so wise. <laughs> that like that takes you that takes you everywhere and everything. I think if you can be, if you can admit to not knowing something, but still be confident, mm -hmm. that's a source in and of itself to get anything yeah. done. That's a magical place to be yeah. in, to have that type. Yeah, yeah. That insight. Wow. Okay. Jessica, such incredible advice. Great conversation. <laughs> Where can listeners find you online? I believe I still own the domain lifelikethis.com. <laughs> Very cool. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, thank you so much again, Jessica. I love listening to all of your stories of the fiber arts professional. It's so fascinating. <laughs> no, it's amazing how transferable it is. And I'm just so excited to see uh, what more you tackle in this tech industry. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I hope that helps somebody out there listening. I'm sure it will. Okay. Well, I hope you have a great day. Nice speaking with you. And that's a wrap on another episode of We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. Be sure to rate and subscribe anywhere you can find podcasts and check us out next week for another story and lessons learned from an unconventional path to tech.